I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The way that I've talked about privilege with my students is privilege means that you have opportunities or access to resources that other people don't. Um, and that can be based on a whole lot of different factors. Sometimes you have privileges that you're born with. Some are you know, granted or given to you. Um, but the whole purpose isn't to make anyone feel bad or guilty about being privileged. It's about recognizing the privileges that you do have. And once you recognize them, how can you therefore spend them in order to advocate for others, you know, to give people the same access that you've had in certain ways? Um, you know, I think the, the term like white privilege is very, uh, causes a lot of feelings in people for lots of different reasons. Um, but again, like not about shaming, not about guilt or anything like that. Um, and with students, I've been really been able to expand that idea of privilege. Like there are lots of ways that you might have access to things. If you are like an able-bodied person, you might have financial privilege. You might have religious privilege, depending on you know your religious beliefs and where you live. Like there are so many different ways that you might have a leg up compared to other people. How you day? How you day? That is the voice of Liz Kleinrock. Liz is an anti-bias educator and someone who has grown to be a very, very great friend of mine. She's brilliant. She's phenomenal. She's engaging and she is action-oriented. We talk about her life as a transracial adoptee, and we we deal with the nuances with that. We dive into how she fell into education how she fell into activism and why she thinks it's important and we also discuss how she deals with criticisms it, it is a very interesting place to be when you create a lot of work that involves a lot of emotional labor and a lot of times we don't discuss you know the repercussions of that and how to make sure that you recoup and recover so liz shares her thoughts on that and I really enjoyed this interview. I always enjoy talking to Liz, but I think you all can understand how you can play a role, whether you are privileged or marginalized, how you can play a role in making the world a better place and how we can use our abilities to create access for opportunities to foster environments and create environments that promote equity instead of just equality. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the interview and I hope you check it out. Also, a lot of you have been asking about where to order my book. Some of you know my book is coming out on Beyonce Day, <laughs> September 4th. Uh, for those that don't know, September 4th is Beyonce's birthday. But my book is coming out on, on September 4th, but you can pre-order the book. And please, please 
pre-order the book. The book is called Use Your Difference to Make a Difference. The more you pre-order the book, the more the, the publishers and the, the bookstores are eager to get it into their, their cities. I, will, I plan on doing a tour in the fall in the United States. So if you want me to come out to your city, send me an email and uh, maybe a contact information of where you feel like I should go. And I would love to stop by. But please pre-order the book. The link is going to be in the show notes. And I love you all. Enjoy the interview. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Liz Kleinrock, who can be described as my academic bestie, essentially, because we, we always go back and forth over intellectual conversations about race and, and, and different uh, institutions that we have problems with and different ways we can solve them. But Liz is a phenomenal lady. She's a social justice advocate. She's an award-winning teacher. She's a TED speaker who has a video that has amassed over a million views. And she speaks on several things ranging from boundaries, promoting anti-bias education, and teaching consent to kids. We're going to be talking about several societal uh, things that affect us in a good and bad way today. And we're going to be highlighting ways that teachers can actually create a safe environment for people to fully express themselves. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is mine. And and it, for you, there's there are like an infinite way, infinite variety of ways for us to go about this. But I want to start from the beginning with you because your background is fascinating. You are, you're adopted, right? Yeah. And uh, you grew up as a, a Jew and... Uh-huh. You, you you describe yourself as Korean American, and you also have white parents. So can you tell me, or rather the audience, the story of all that? I'm sure you must have had a lot of interesting things to think about as a kid. Yes. Oh my goodness. All right. So where to begin? So, um, I was adopted when I was really little, like six months old or so, and grew up in Washington D.C. Uh, my parents mentioned are white. Jewish, like I have a very large extended family, um, but I am actually an only child. Um, but I was raised in a household, in a community, and in a school which was all predominantly white. Um, there weren't very many people who looked like me, and the few Asian kids I did know also came from Asian families. So I didn't really feel like I had a lot culturally to connect with, with them, um, which was challenging at times. I do remember these really weird situations where I was sent to Korean culture camp once when I was in elementary school. I was probably in like third or fourth grade. Um, And I guess it was meant to just like bring together Korean adoptees to learn about Korean culture, but it it was a very strange experience. Um, Having never really been around other Korean people before and then being like lumped in with this other group of kids who look Korean, but also have been brought up in households and cultures that were not Korean. Um, And it really took a very long time for me to try to understand where I came from and how that, you know, where my background really played into my own identity. It wasn't really till college until I was able to really explore it. Um, I took Korean language in undergrad, um, made a lot of Korean friends, mainly international students in school, and ended up finally going to Korea and had an internship and lived there for a summer with a Korean family, um, which is a really eye-opening experience. It was really wonderful in a lot of ways. It was very painful in a lot of ways, um, but ultimately gave me a lot of closure. I know like there are a lot of adoptees out there who, um, you know, are still very much haunted by this sense of loss 
And that loss is very hard to articulate because it's hard to explain something being taken from you before you even know what it is or what you're missing. Um, and I feel very lucky to have a really great relationship with my parents. And I know that's not always the case with a lot of adoptees, especially those who have gone through the foster system and things like that. Um, at the end of the day, honestly, I, I do think that a lot of things in our lives happen for a reason. And I feel like right now, at least in my, my life and um, my personal life, my family, my career, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. Thanks for that. And that is so uh brilliant for you to paint that picture because I believe that that sort of illustrates your career right now where you have, you're someone that lives on intersections, right? And even when we talk about your activism, one of your biggest frustrations is the fact that a lot of activists aren't intersectional with their messages. And we're going to talk about that later on. But I'm curious about that identity piece because I identify with you in the sense that many times there are occasions where I wasn't Nigerian enough for anyone. Mm-hmm. And that was because it wasn't because I was adopted. It was because I kept moving and because of my dad's job and we moved to different countries. And by the time I came back, I was a hidden immigrant in my own country. And there were things that I just didn't get or people already had perceptions of me based on how I sounded or maybe experiences that I didn't share with them. Now, as a kid, 10, 11, 12, you know, and, and you obviously from the uh, you know, age of six months, you were adopted into a whole different culture than you were initially born into. That moment of feeling lost, what do you feel like is a good way to create space for a lost uh, uh, kid to grow? Because I don't know that we have enough of those safe spaces in today's world today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really hard question just because it also just depends on who you are and what you need and you know what self-care looks like for you and what does reflection look like for you. Um, mm. Like, I know that there are some people who I immediately want to talk to and have a conversation with when I'm feeling a certain way about, you know, all of these issues around identity. And there's some times where I just need to sit by myself and really, you know, process and work through all the different emotions that I'm having. Um, I think part of like what made it difficult is that I didn't have any adults in my life who were adopted. So there wasn't any, an expert or somebody who had gone through it who I could look to and maybe, you know get a heads up about all the ways that I might be processing or, you know, the feelings or issues that I might be dealing with later on. And so it was a lot of, I think a lot of the challenge was just navigating it by myself. Right. Um, right. And yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but the other thing you brought up is, is parents sometimes don't know how to deal with that. Right. Because it's, it's not an experience they've shared. And so they might not know how to help. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, you know, my parents are amazing. Um, like I have a really great relationship with them. But still, you know, there are just some things that I think even as a kid, I knew that I needed to process by myself, or maybe I wasn't even sure that that was a conversation I was comfortable having with them. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm 31 years old now, and some of those conversations I'm having with them, and some I'm still holding on to. Gotcha. Gotcha. You, what you experience, is that called transracial adoption? Yes. Okay. I'd never heard of it until I, I kept following your, um, your page, because I... I've been obsessed with your Instagram pages, you know. And then the most interesting thing happened where there are all these movies that come about where we have white families adopting people from different backgrounds. And I don't know that I've ever seen you angry or this angry. Or I've seen you sometimes with, with other things when it comes to privilege. <laughs> but you blew up on some, I think it was a Mark Wahlberg film. And I was like, what is going on? And I just got reading the poster. Can you just express 
why you feel like it, it is, um, I guess, Hollywood takes it lightly and people sort of don't understand the impact of transracial adoption. Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem is that when these stories are told in mainstream media, that they're always told from the perspective of usually the white family who is doing the adopting. Um, it's really rare to see like the pain and the loss of somebody who has been adopted rather than, you know, painting this picture of, oh, life was really tough or like, you know, the, their biological mother was going through all these things. So this child had to be given up and lucky them like hit the jackpot. You know, they got raised in this like really wonderful privileged family and like everything is all good. Gotcha. And that's just a very oversimplified way to look at things. And I think there's so much, it oversimplifies adoption as a whole. There are so many things that go into it, like really getting into, if you're a parent or you want to be a parent, why do you want to adopt in the first place? Like for whose purpose does it serve? And also if you are adopting transracially, what do you actually know about like the culture, the background where your child is coming from? Um, there's so much research and so much nuance. And I think for any parent, you want to be able to have this connection to your children if you give birth to them or not. And I think that something that adopted parents don't consider is that there are absolutely going to be a whole myriad of things that they are not going to be able to be that person for their kid. And how is that going to feel? And if you know that going into it, who do you already have in your life who could serve as that person for your child? Right, right. And then I think what you're hinting at with some of the stories that Hollywood tells is that white savior complex, uh, where it seems like the white family came to save and you don't actually explore the other, uh, the nuance of all sides. And, and uh, uh, that doesn't really serve anyone because it just sort of perpetuates a certain narrative that people need to be saved, as opposed to embracing the complexity of identities and, and potential growth on the other side of, yeah. of the things. Absolutely. Gotcha. Gotcha. Ah, all right. So that's, that's a good primer. So all of you now understand a little bit more about Liz, but your journey to teaching is possibly even more fascinating than that because to take what you did, what you experienced growing up, you know, you, you, you were, uh, a Korean American who was in the, you know, a Jewish family in DC where I affectionately call, uh, which I affectionately call chocolate city. Cause I, I don't know. I grew up there a little bit. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, so, yeah, so a lot of different, you know, different cultures from there. I'm just curious as to why education became your path to, uh, you know, uh, making an impact because you've become a very, very premier anti-bias educator and an award winning one, in, fa in fact. Uh, I've, I've been very privileged in having some really truly phenomenal teachers in my life. Um, I am very privileged, went to Sidwell Friends in DC from pre-kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. Um, I'm still actually in touch with some of my teachers there. I was asked back to speak with students a couple of months ago and it's been really wonderful to still have the connection to the community that I grew up in. Um, because the school is Quaker, um, philanthropy and like giving back was always something that was really heavily emphasized starting like in elementary school. Um, but I think like as I've gotten older, I've had to kind of take that value and that importance and try to reframe it in my mind and try to figure out, again, like going back to what you mentioned about like the savior complex, how am I trying to help? And am I actually trying to help people in ways that they 
want to be helped, not in the ways that I think they need to be helped. So when I began teaching, it was kind of this happy accident. Um, a roommate of mine in college um, volunteered with this organization. So I would start tutoring after school, like my sophomore or junior year. Um, I also worked in an after school arts program when I was in college and really loved being with students. It was just really fun. Um, and so I tacked on an education minor and it was the first job that I got outside of graduation and haven't really looked back. I thought I would kind of try it on and see how I liked it. And I've been doing it ever since. And now it's like the only thing I can ever imagine myself doing. <laughs> and doing it, you have, I mean, your, your platform, by the way, on Instagram is teach and transform. And I will put that in the show notes to make sure people continue to follow you. But it's a mix of resources for people to be to become more aware of what's going on. Uh, but it, it's also an, an avenue for you to express your thoughts on, on certain issues. And some of the thoughts that you really bring up are privilege, identity, power dynamics, equity, and equality. And those are things I talk about often when I'm trying to explain to someone the idea of perpetuating stereotypes. But I'm curious from your lens how you define uh, privilege, identity, and power dynamics. Sure. So let's start with privilege. Um, the way that I've talked about privilege with my students is privilege means that you have opportunities or access to resources that other people don't. Um, and that can be based on a whole lot of different factors. Sometimes you have privileges that you're born with. Some are you know, granted or given to you. Um, but the whole purpose isn't to make anyone feel bad or guilty about being privileged. It's about recognizing the privileges that you do have. And once you recognize them, how can you therefore spend them in order to advocate for others, you know, to give people the same access that you've had in certain ways? Um, you know, I think the, the term like white privilege is very, uh, causes a lot of feelings in people for lots of different reasons. Um, but again, like not about shaming, not about guilt or anything like that. Um, and with students, I've been really been able to expand that idea of privilege. Like there are lots of ways that you might have access to things. If you are like an able-bodied person, you might have financial privilege. You might have religious privilege, depending on, you know, your religious beliefs and where you live. Like there are so many different ways that you might have a leg up compared to other people. Um, and so it's really just building an awareness with kids and helping them understand that, you know, you don't have to feel bad about who you are. Again, not about being guilty, but how can you use it to help people who need it? Right, right. And and from my understanding, you, you really feel like the you know understanding what your privileges are is a good place to start if you want to be an advocate or even be involved in social justice because you're not going to be able to know where to start if you don't acknowledge what access you have. Uh, period. Actually, okay. well, you know, because. The able-bodied thing is one that gets ignored often, right? I, for, I, I think people always get slighted when you say white privilege. They're like, well, you don't think I earned everything? And I'm like saying, even me as a black man, the privileges that I have, and then there are also moments where I'm marginalized. I Like I have a male privilege where I, I can walk down the street of New York City and not feel like my life is in danger past 9 p.m. or a cat called. At the same time, you know, I'm a black man in America where certain things could happen. I also have a different sounding name and a different passport. And sometimes that gets subject to more scrutiny, but the, you know, but that doesn't mean you can't have the intersections back and forth. But if I don't acknowledge the fact that the fact that I'm male and I speak English and I'm a Christian and all those things give me a certain advantage, then I'm living in a delusional world <laughs> essentially and, and, and not accepting that those are things that I have access to that may mostly but don't. 
Yeah. And the way that people see us, you know, sometimes we have control over those things and sometimes we don't. Like I'm aware that as an East Asian female, there are a lot of stereotypes that come along with that part of my identity. Like I have been like in equity trainings where I've been told by people, oh, like you seem so kind and like soft spoken and patient. And again, like all of these things from like the model minority stereotypes seem like they're compliments, but they really aren't. Um, Another day, maybe we can get into how like the model minority myth like impacts like anti-blackness in the Asian community. Um, But there are like those parts of my identity. And I realized that that is also my privilege that I am a person of color with this stereotype attached to me and growing up in a white family. That also means that I can really easily navigate spaces usually held by white people, but also people of color. And if I'm going to be viewed as somebody who is quote unquote non-threatening, then I absolutely have to use that because people will invite me in like, Oh, you know, we have this activist, this educator, she's the person of color, but my personality might not exactly be what they expect, but that's like a privilege that I have to flex in order to advocate for others. If people are willing to listen to me because of who I am and what I look like, I got to use it. Exactly. And speaking of flex and privilege, I'm sure you get this question often. And I did uh, in a workshop I was doing actually, I was actually doing a workshop recently. And one of the questions posed to me um, was was as as follows. You know, the guy says, I'm a, a white man, lawyer, but I don't know how to get into uh, I guess, um, fields with a lot of marginalized groups or, or people of, of color, because I feel like they wouldn't want to hear from me. What do you say to someone like that, that says that's an issue that they have, even though they want to help? I mean, honestly, I hear it all the time. I hear it from white teachers. I also hear it from white students. Mm-hmm. When we talk about things like identity in class, so often I hear white students say things like, I don't have one. Like, I don't have a culture. I don't have an ethnicity. But you do. Everybody does. Um, And it's really easy for those feelings that, like I mentioned in elementary school, like how do those translate and how do those grow as people become adults? Um, Like I remember being in grad school, hearing from a lot of my white classmates, like when we talk about things like race, I know it's important and I have opinions, but I just feel like this is never my place. It's never my space to take up. And I think while that is, it's great to be very aware of the space that you're in and to be aware of like how you are showing up and how you're not um, in certain situations, that man might be right. Maybe it's not always this place to chime in with his own like observations or experience. Sometimes it's a lot more powerful for white people to sit and listen and learn from black people, indigenous people and other people of color. Um, but I found that it's really the most meaningful that when white people who are having those types of thoughts and like want to be more active and involved and advocate for others, what really matters is when their spaces only occupied by white people, like yeah. out there are only white people in this room. Why is that? Or if a white person says something that you know is racist or is a microaggression, to call them in and have that conversation with them, it's going to land very differently than if you or I had that same talk. I so agree, and then I'm glad that you touched on identity because that was the the other thing. But just to recap, the having a privilege allows you to use what that power gives you. Uh, uh, as a, a means for change, you know, it allows you to turn that power into something that could be potentially used to dismantle a problematic system or a racist system. So if you find yourself in a position where you have a privilege, don't shy away from that responsibility because essentially it's going to affect other people, whether you don't think it does. And then if you're someone that feels uncomfortable or you feel like you don't have a space, listening is always a good place to start. 
But when you're in your area and you notice that a lot of people are perpetuating certain narratives, call them in. That's Those are the things that Liz have said. And, and as you were saying, as we transition to identity, you were talking about the fact that some white students of yours, they don't, they don't have identity. I find that with identity, it's, it's not just one thing. We are so intersectional, right? We have multiple identities. And you've listened to some of my speeches where I say we live in a binary world governed, um, uh, we live in a world of nuance rather governed by binary systems, which is unfortunate because people don't have the opportunity to fully express themselves. It, you, you just shared with me all the identities you had growing up uh, and yet, when we bring up identity, it's often limited to what you can see, the color of your skin, your orientation, and maybe, you know, uh, something else. But those are the, maybe religion. Those are the, typically the three things we hear. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that when we consider identity, there, you know, like you said, like there are different layers of it. We have our seen identities and we have our unseen identities. And so often our our seen identity is like the ones that people can just really briefly observe uh, in us, just like, you know, passing us by on the street are things that are so closely associated with things like bias and stereotypes, but those are often the things that get the most like visible attention rather than the things that are going on below the surface, you know, like thinking of it as like, the, like an iceberg, you know, like 10% exactly. is visible, 90% is underneath. Um, and so like when I work with both, children and adults really trying to dig in and think about what are the parts of me that anybody can tell just by looking at me and what are the parts that you'd actually have to have a conversation with me and talk to me in order to get to know me and understand these things about me but then also what do we as a society place the most value on like what parts of people's identities do we spend the most time affirming what do we yeah. spend money on like those um, pieces of our identities and those are usually the surface level ones and then get even getting into school as teachers, you know, what parts of our students' identities do we affirm the most regularly? And how much of that iceberg do we really see and understand of each and every one of our students? It takes yeah. a lot more time to really, you know, dig deeper. It does. It does. And, and obviously, w with your line of work, I think uh, teachers have a great responsibility of setting uh, the tone for the type of behaviors that, you know, kids start to model or emulate or promote and if you give them the tools to be able to affirm themselves or feel comfortable with themselves it starts from really giving them a good you know um, palette for them to understand how to discuss their identity acknowledge their privilege which will lead to power dynamics now power dynamics is probably something that goes beyond um, a lot of your students but it's something that they do feel and they do see and it leads to things like equity and equality. I'm curious if you could share your thoughts on how power dynamics is, shape, is shaping our world today. Oh my goodness, in schools, it shows up so much. You know, when I talk about power with my students, when we study history, we talk a lot about power being the ability to help, to harm, to make change, to have an influence. And sometimes those are very big picture things and sometimes they're very small. You know, they can just happen between, you know, two people or they can happen on like a very broad societal scale. Um, it's really interesting listening to young kids talk about how they feel they are empowered or whenever they feel disempowered. And as a classroom teacher, I want to try to level that playing field in my classroom as much as possible. Um, like an example that I use a lot is when... If you, if you enter any school or if you go on like any school's website, you're usually going 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. going to see some list of like desired characteristics or traits, you know, like we want our students to be responsible and like lifelong learners and almost every school I've ever been at or worked at has always listed like our students will be respectful. And I think even in that, there's so much nuance that you have to dig into. Like, do you actually mean you want your students to be respectful and you are going to therefore mutually respect them? Or are you talking about compliance? Do you consider when a student is being respectful, they're just saying like, yes or no, and they're following instructions? You know, those are two very different conversations. And those are things that our students run into every single day. The power dynamic between one teacher and a student might be completely different between another teacher and that same student, depending on the relationship, depending on how they see them. You know, so even though these kids are young, these are things that they still they still experience every day. Yeah, oh, this is this is amazing. I love that you did it so much. And obviously you can start to see why I can talk to you about uh, so many things. But your style of teaching is one that I was not exposed to growing up, uh, frankly. And so I'm always fascinated with what you do with with your kids. We'll start off with your TED Talks and I'll, I'll go back to some of the journal prompts that you often have your kids go through. But your TED Talk uh, dealt with consent. and is it third graders you teach or fourth graders? Third. Third graders. You don't normally hear <laughs> the word consent and uh, third graders in the same sentence. So I'm curious as to why you thought that was very important to address. Well, I think if you look at our world right now, you'll see that a lot of people miss that lesson. A lot of people miss that conversation when they were young. Mm-hmm. And so when things like, you know, the Me Too movement are popping up in the media when um, Justice Kavanaugh was going through his hearings. Um, and there were so many conversations around how we view certain situations and what is everybody's role and responsibility in them. And as a teacher, like I can't, it's just a person, I can't change anything that's happened in the past. But because I am a teacher, I can start to think about what do my students need to know now in order to avoid those situations later on or to be educated and know better. Um, And I think if you walk into like any classroom, you're going to hear teachers who are already using some of the language, you know, like use your words, not your hands. You know, if somebody says, please stop touching me or hurting me in a certain way, like you listen to them, you respect them. Um, So I think all I really did was put the adult word to a lot of things that are already happening in a lot of classrooms, but also just being very, very explicit with students. Um, And a lot of the conversations around sexual consent, which like we did not talk about because my kids are eight and nine years old. We're really talking about like our personal bubble space. Like if you're playing four square and someone's standing too close to you or someone pushes you, 
you know, like what are appropriate ways to respond and like, how can we read people's, you know, voice and tone and body language and just become more kind of emotionally literate with ourselves and other people. I really consider that like the foundation that needs to be cemented in order to understand sexual consent later on. I agree. I agree. I agree. Uh, so uh, the reason why I even agree is I, I, I was doing a masculinity workshop. Uh, I think I can't remember. It was in the last section I did. The last session I did, it was here in New York City. And I often ask just, you know, questions just to see how uh, men and women will react. And there was one question I asked. I asked, uh, how many of you expect to hear a yes when you ask for something? And a lot of the men raised their hands. And I was, and, I, and this was a close, you know, we were being, I was like, we have to be as honest as possible. And a lot of what they said stems from what you're actually talking about. The idea of, we've already talked about entitlement, power, power dynamics, all these things. And even some of the women that raised their hand is, is they talked about ranking. I expect you to do what I say. There's no, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I do think that it's never too early to bring these things up because we live in an interesting time where institutions such as workplaces and education expect you to ignore the things that do affect the institutions themselves. You know, you could turn on the news and you could see everything from the Me Too to abortion to all these things that are happening. And then you go to the classroom and you expect a, a radio silent uh, <laughs> environment where you're teaching a watered down version. And and that, in the, you, know, expl- you know, implicitly just says that you are okay with ignoring the problems outside. So I admired that you did that, and I love that you stay consistent with that because I, I like I said, I've never had a teacher that did that for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but with that comes criticism, and you're not you're no uh, stranger to this. You you get the you get your fair share of this from from trolls to parents and to even other uh, activists that I've noticed. How do you deal with that? Just taking a break sometimes is really nice. My, my partner is really wonderful, and sometimes he'll cut me off and tell me, you know, you're limited in your screen time today. Uh, <laughs> and it's a really hard balance. Like when a lot of your work and your platform exists online, but, you know, like it's a source of, you know, so much energy and so much education, but at the same time can also be a source of so much distraction and um, pain, to be honest. It's really tough when you want to be able to use your platform for positive things, but then just have a lot of negativity thrown at you, too. Yeah. Um, I try to really keep it in perspective. You know, it's going to mean a lot more to me if I'm getting the criticism from somebody I work with or somebody who's in my life rather than like a blanket insult thrown by somebody who, you know, has like a throwaway account online and is just trying to probably exercise their power to make me feel a certain way, even though they don't know me at all. Right. Um, I think in this day and age, we don't spend a lot of time assuming positive intent or seeking to understand where people are coming from before passing a judgment on them. Um, And in this world that you and I are in, I think there needs to be a lot more compassion and recognition that this work is such a spectrum. Um, You know, I don't think anybody ever like comes out of the womb, like reading James Baldwin or anything like that. It's, it's a process that you go through it in order to educate yourself. And sometimes that process is unlearning really problematic behaviors or thought patterns that you've been exposed to throughout your entire life that I think we just need to be more compassionate with ourselves and with each other in this work. Yeah. I mean, I, I say it's three things. I, I say it's learn, unlearn, relearn. And, uh, and that's just how things have to be with, with this field that we're in. But what I like that you're pointing out though, is the fact that 
it is not easy. I think in our in our world, in our space, people would just assume that um, nothing can hurt us. You know, there's nothing that can emotionally drag us down. And yeah, I, women, by the way, get way worse <laughs> than you've gotten way worse than anything I've gotten. And uh, particularly women of color in the field. And it goes from how they look like to all that kind of things. And I think people just assume that those words would not affect people. And I love the fact that you acknowledge in the, these things that it's okay to step away to have a moment to practice self-care and to limit, you know, screen time because it is not something that we're just built to be able to have thick skin around just because we like a topic and we're passionate about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, uh, this is this is potentially uh, controversial, but in our field as well, uh, even though there are people that are, you know, interested in doing the right thing, I think you and I can agree that sometimes they're not intersectional, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. it, and even though they have the guise of being so, and so, and you particularly see this, you know, with, with when when it's you know when we're talking about uh, months that represent Asia and Pacific, uh, uh, you know, and people of Pacific um, heritage, Asia Pacific heritage, where you feel like there's a lot more energy in other uh, other heritage months as opposed to. Um, months that represent people of Asian backgrounds. Maybe it's because of the perceived model minority myth. Uh, and also when it comes to women and women's rights, what are your thoughts around that? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I just know you feel passionate about this. Yeah. I mean, I think like I, this month since May is um, supposed to be dedicated to people of Asian and Pacific Islander descent. Um, it was really surprising and I'll be totally real, like a little hurtful to see people who are usually so outspoken when it comes to things like Hispanic Heritage Month or Black History Month, um, Women's History Month, um, you know, LGBTQ rights, um, you know, like religious diversity throughout the year. But when it came to Asian Pacific Islander identity, just radio silence. Um, and I think a lot of that really does stem from the whole model minority stereotype and also just the lack of visibility of Asian American Pacific Islander history in yeah. textbooks and curriculum. Like it's not something that people really learn about in school. It's stuff that even I didn't really learn about until I got to graduate school just because it was never included in the curriculum. And if we don't have that education, like how can you possibly know about how Asians and Pacific Islanders have been oppressed and stereotyped and you know, marginalized throughout United States history, you know, and at the same time, I recognize that this is also a place where people are trying to learn more. And I can't, you know, spend my time criticizing people because they don't know. But if you now know that you don't know, what are you going to do to educate yourself? And so this month, I've been trying to put out a lot of books and resources and lessons for people to, um, you know, educate themselves, but also do with their own students. So they're growing up with a very different lens than how we grew up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is going to come out well, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after May. But what, the, the most amazing thing about Liz's Instagram is you feel like you're a student, essentially, you're, like you're one of her students. She's giving you homework. She's giving you prompts. She's sharing her opinions in between. But a lot of the things that she tells you to do are things that allow you to learn as, along the way. And for this month, she's been 
um, you know, giving us assignments, essentially, on, on, uh, uh, you know, people of Pacific Island uh, heritage or Asian heritage. And it's interesting, the things that I've been learning, you know, I followed one today where I didn't even know how, um, you know, Chinese people were brought to Mexico uh, and all those type of things. And those things play a big, big role in shaping our kids today. And it comes down to the textbooks and the things that are taught in school. So if we don't have these things in school, how do you, Liz, find these books and how do you incorporate them in a curriculum that maybe, I don't know, doesn't have a system that facilitates these type of books to be taught in the first place? Yes, I spent a lot of time reading and researching on my own. Like the things that I put out online, you kind of get to see like the more polished, summarized versions, but there's a lot of hours of labor reading of research that goes into being able to share it with people in like this very, you know, packageable like bite, if that makes sense. Um, there are so many resources out there I found that really celebrate all different cultures and backgrounds and beliefs, but there isn't always a lot of visibility of how to locate them um, or even like what to do with them when you do find them. Um, like a big learning curve for me this time around has been like the lack of visibility of Pacific Islander history and heritage, like finding kids books um, written by people from Pacific Islands has been incredibly challenging. Like they are out there, um, but I've also noticed that many are only circulated locally, like in those countries and in those uh, cities. Um, it's really hard to find if you're you know, living in the mainland USA. Um, so trying to connect with people who are, um, you know, located in different places who might have more insight into the history of the places that I want to be able to learn about and share about. But I mean, I'll be real, it takes a lot of labor. It takes a lot of dedication because this isn't the type of thing where somebody is going to package it for you always and like leave it on your doorstep. You have to go out and do the legwork. Yeah. And, and what I'm hearing there is intentionality. It, and I, I think it's very interesting in our line of work, diversity, inclusion, and equity, that that becomes a big thing. I, I'll share a quick story, which is similar to what you're saying. I, I've said this in often in previous workshops or talks I've done, but I ran into a recruiter uh, that I work out with sometimes at the gym. You know, he's, he's a white man, he's a cool guy, he knows what I do, but he uh, he came up to me one day and he's like, hey, you do diversity and inclusion, right? I need to talk to you. I, you know, I recruit salesmen, um, you know, salespeople rather for, for organizations. And so I said, sure, let's talk. And then we had tea because uh, I don't drink coffee. And then um, we, we had tea <laughs> and he was he was telling me about his process. And he says, you know, I usually look at the face, see if it's relatively good looking or, or good looking. So that's that's presentable. Look at the years of experience, two years at least. And then I look at the school and then I send. And then he said, I need you to help me diversify the pool. And I said, wait, you want me to do your work? I said that I said. He said, no, I don't want you to work. I just feel like people will receive you more. I was like, no, but you have access to all these people. Why don't you do the research and find people of color? He said, oh, it's too much work and I wouldn't get paid quickly. And then I said, and I asked him this question, are you saying that money is more important than making an impact for you? And then he paused and then he said, yes. Then I said, well, then you have the answer. So if you want to make an impact, you, don't, you, you shouldn't put the responsibility on me because what you're asking me to do is to actually be a competitor of you, you right, first of all, and you are bucking the responsibility. And I find that that's what that type of attitude, like you said, when you have to do a lot of work, a lot of labor with textbooks and things like that. That's where I've noticed a lot of people start to fall off, where they start off with the intention, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then they start to see how much work it takes and then you don't, they don't stay. The numbers dwindle. <laughs> and I, I don't know how to make it more urgent, but I've noticed that with 
with activism. I've noticed that with equity and inclusion, when there's emotional labor or actual physical labor, it becomes less of a responsibility for them mm-hmm. or priority rather. Yeah. Or people just tend to care about the things that directly impact them. Yeah. 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 So uh, that's, those, those are the honest questions we have to ask ourselves because uh, I think um, we as a world tend to be more short-sighted <laughs> and short-term thinking. You can see with climate change, we can see it with things that affect uh, uh, BIPOC or, or women. And if it's not immediately affecting us, we sort of forget that we're going to potentially have daughters <laughs> or and the daughters are going to have friends or we're going to go into schools or we're going to have mental health factor into our environment, or we might be CEOs of a company, and we forget about those things until they directly impact us. So we have to be able to start to look at the bigger picture and understand that uh, thinking about things bigger than us is way more important than just uh, being short-sighted. Yeah, absolutely. Preach. We're going to wrap up soon, but I want to talk about your journal prompts, because it's uh, journaling is one of my favorite things to do. I like to practice reflectiveness so that I stop being reactive. I think we need to be more reflective as opposed to being reactive in today's world. And then journals allow me to re- sort of reflect on my day, things I'm grateful for, things that I missed. You, on your stories, sometimes I see endless papers just with Crayola, uh, not Crayola, uh, uh, markers or so. I don't know what brand of marker you use, but, but different markers. Uh, and it's like charts. And it's this kids who are writing their thoughts on some of the topics that we've done today. And it's interesting seeing the world through their eyes. Why is journal prompting something that you feel is important for kids as young as, you know, eight years old or even younger to practice? I think it's really all about making space. And like you were saying, the ability to reflect is so important. And our lives move at such crazy fast paces. Sometimes you actually need to carve out dedicated time every single day to do that. Like not everybody is as disciplined, um, you know, to sit down with their thoughts and reflect on how they're feeling or what they're experiencing. And with these kids, I want to turn it into a habit while they're young so they continue that practice on like later in their life when no one is holding them accountable to those things. I hope it's just something that they enjoy doing and see value in and it doesn't always have to be like super serious like I love giving my kids like really goofy questions too it just Mm -hmm. I think it um always helps to remind me like I have very high expectations of my students but at the end of the day my kids are kids they're eight and nine years old and it's important to laugh and celebrate and you know have these joyous moments with them too yeah 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 and I think you also remind us uh, uh, of the fact that, you know, even though we think kids are young, they take in, they take in way more information than we understand. I was 10 years old the first time someone said something mildly racist to me <laughs> or was, said something microaggressive to me. And my, my parents obviously didn't know at the time because I didn't know how to articulate it to them, but I also didn't even know what to do because they, this was the first time they experienced that. And Nigeria is mostly black and I was now in a white environment. So it's interesting when um, we forget that as we grow older, that, you know, that happened to us now, but it's way more magnified now with social media because we don't even know what our kids are, you know, exposed to or what what type of online bullying is, is happening or what they're doing when they're playing Call of Duty or, you know, Fortnite with their classmates. You, you have no idea or whatever media they're consuming, all these things that are being programmed. And so if we don't start checking or giving people tools to be able to express themselves as young as eight, nine, um, 
I think we're doing our kids a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like I always say, that our kids are exposed to the exact same things that adults are exposed to. Like they're living in the same world, they're going to the same places, they're eavesdropping on adult conversations or, you know, paying attention to what's on the TV in the background. I think a lot of adults make assumptions that, oh, like this isn't like a kid topic. So therefore, like they're not interested or they're not listening. They're always listening. <laughs> Kids are yeah. always listening. I was always listening as a kid because hey, I was just super nosy too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's really infrequent that kids are given a place at the table and are actually asked, like, what do you think about this big, like real world issue? And I've just seen that when you invite kids to share their thoughts and their opinions, they're, they're so into it. They're so engaged. Um, there's a huge difference between having a conversation around like Black Lives Matter or around climate change um, rather than just some, you know, fluffy conversation that really doesn't have a lot of meaning or depth to it. Yeah. And I've seen with my students who are usually like kind of checked out when it comes to traditional academics, really perk up and want to participate and engage when we're talking about issues around diversity, equity, inclusion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you must have some heroes or did you, were you just born this way? Is this what happened? You just sort of knew what you wanted to do after your activism was activated and, you know, now you become this, this icon or did you actually have role models that you learned from afar? Oh my goodness, so many role models. I've had so many amazing teachers. I know I can credit my parents quite a lot. Yes. Um, they're pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> but I had really good teachers, not just in elementary school, but like all the way up through grad school. Like I'm still very close with one of my graduate school um, professors and she was my advisor. Um, but I think it's really important to identify mentors and people you want to learn from no matter what age you are. You know, there are always things that you can learn. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I know you don't just do activism. I know you don't just do te uh, do teaching or I know you don't just teach or write. You have other sides to you, other aspects. You're pretty creative and um, you're also goofy. And then you, 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 your, uh, your pet was the, the star in Jordan Peele's last film, Us. So, um, <laughs> Sorry. She's gonna be that guy from the corner right now. I put her away when I do interviews or I'm doing work because I also like try to eat the sofa. She is a bunny. If you do not know that, she yeah. Sorry, I should have so prefaced that. She has Liz has a bunny, and in us, no spoilers. Bunnies play a big role or a minor role or big, depending on what you feel like they represent. <laughs> but um, uh, I was saying all that to say there are other things you do uh, that I've noticed. You know, when you check out when you do things for fun, even in the media you consume, can you tell us what you do for fun? Sure. I really love exercising. It's a huge form of self-care. Um, it's kind of just like this 45 minute to an hour period a day where I can mentally check out. Um, that and just spending time with my friends, my partner. Um, I love Netflix and HBO as much as the next person. Um, things that just kind of allow me to mentally escape when I need to, because I think those mental breaks are really, really important. Yeah. And of course, I live in LA, so anything outside is always an added bonus. There's a lovely park where I like to go read whenever the weather is nice. And yeah, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. And how can people catch up with you? How can people follow you? How can people stay in touch? Um, so you can find me, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, my handle is teach and transform, all one word. Um, 
I also have a Patreon page where I'm starting to put out more content there. Um, I do have accounts on Twitter and Facebook under the same name, but not as active on there. But you can always email me at liz at teachandtransform.org um, or check out my website, same name as well. And I have a lot of resources, reading lists and things like that up there. Absolutely. And, and I, I want to even give you more opportunity or more of a chance to talk about your Patreon page because uh, and even the importance of, of supporting anti-bias educators or anti-bias um, um, social justice advocates because I, I think sometimes people think <laughs> that this work is easy and you just highlighted how, how much uh, emotional and physical labor it takes. So plug your Patreon page and how can people help and why should people help because, you know, Obviously, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, um, Patreon is something that I really had no idea even existed up until a couple of months ago. Um, but recognize that there are a lot of educators, activists, artists who use it. Um, and it's a way for people in the community to support their work and the products that they're creating. Um, for me, it's, you know, compiling resources, like I said, like doing a lot of that research, that reading um, and packaging it for people in ways that make it very accessible and digestible for them. Um, but a lot of this does take a lot of emotional labor and a lot of time. And I've asked for folks in the community if they see value in my work, if they have used lessons and resources that I've created and put out, um, if they would like to show their appreciation and ongoing support, It's it really means a lot. But it's a way that allows me to carve out more space and time in my schedule to create more to share with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, it really is something that um, I think everybody should really check out because if you, if you spend even a week just following Liz's content, you're going to understand how much of a curriculum it is. It's essentially a life curriculum to be able to see the world in a bigger way, uh, in the way it's supposed to be seen. And that takes work, that takes time. And we need to make sure we have more of those type of stories out there. So please, please support. Last question is, my mission statement framed in the form of a question. I ask my guests this question all the time. Uh, how do you use your difference to make a difference, Liz? Well, I think back to our conversation about identity earlier, that I have a fairly unique upbringing and it's a perspective that I don't think is very widely shared or experienced by other people. Um, and it's something that I try to bring to the table when I do work with my students. And that could be like a child student or an adult student. Um, but I think, having to navigate different worlds and wear different hats in different situations um, has given me a really interesting perspective when it comes to, you know, advocating for diversity, equity, inclusion work. And as we've been saying this whole time together, like once you recognize that you have a privilege, you have to spend it in order to make a difference. There you go. The great Liz Kleinrock, ladies and gentlemen, and gender nonconforming. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I need to start adding that. I always say, ladies and gentlemen, um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing the history assignments every day too. You're awesome. Yeah, yeah. I missed yesterday, so but I'm going to get back today. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I just missed yesterday for some reason, but I'm back at it today. Uh, and thank you so much for really um, uh, challenging us to do that. I really appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen and non-conforming, until next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.